0: Last week's episode of the Ponder New Podcast featured a reflection on God and violence. And if there's further thoughts on that, please please let me know. And so this week, uh, I'm going to let you off easy. We're just going to talk about God and money and faith and finances. Really easy stuff, right? (laughs) Uh, In today's uh, story from the Gospel of Matthew, that's where we've been focusing this fall, uh, Jesus is pushed. Uh, by some religious leaders about taxes. And Jesus comes back with some amazing reflections uh, both about money, about idolatry, uh, and then later on even what we might call church and state. So first half of the podcast focusing on more of the connection to daily life, that Sunday to Monday gap, especially around uh, money. And then the second half going back and thinking a little more about uh, Church and state. So much to ponder. So, without further ado, let's go. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth. And show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. Render unto Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, and render unto God the things that belong to God. These are words of Jesus that have inspired and confounded people over the centuries. But before we can really get to their meaning, We need to take a step back and look at the story here. Now, we're not in a parable. I know this whole fall we've been looking at parables. But this is a good story um, beyond just the quote. And I want to help us get into it. uh, And maybe even you can have your own sort of aha moments, just like the original disciples would have been having when they watched this thing unfold. Okay, so here's the setting. Jesus has just finished telling these parables about how terrible the Jewish religious leaders of his day are. Okay. And he's already come into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey. He's basically declared himself to be the Messiah. They're enraged. They, they want to put him to death, and they're just looking for a way to trap him, to, to get him to say something that will justify them killing him. And so they, uh, set the, they put out the bait, and they set the trap, and they say, Jesus... Is it lawful to pay taxes? Now, if Jesus says it's lawful, this means that Jesus in many ways is legitimizing the Roman occupation of their homeland, of what they consider to be the Holy Land, the Roman soldiers around the temple courts in Jerusalem, the whole thing. And so if Jesus says, yes, it's lawful, then he's again endorsing the system. If he, though, says, no, it's not, then, well, then he could be guilty of sedition and that could be enough for the Roman soldiers to come and arrest him for basically seeking to, you know, lead a riot or a rebellion. So they think they've got him. And uh, Jesus kind of looks at them, shakes his head, knows what's in their heart, and uh, sort of is so disgusted that they're sort of proving his point in his parables. And then he says, well, show me a coin. And it seems like an innocent enough question. And one of the religious leaders, who's not as smart as the others, goes for his coin purse, almost wanting to show that he has money, right? And he pulls it out. And at least one person now on stage is smart. And as soon as they see the coin it dawns on them where Jesus is going. Because one of the the great pillars of Jewish worship is that you cannot make an idol, and you cannot make a graven image of God, and you cannot worship it. And that the whole history of Jewish sort of history has been this sort of war against idolatry in the physical sense of like other gods in the Middle Near East would have statues of themselves or their animal representations um, or the more spiritual idolatry of people making things uh, sort of idols in their lives. And again, Jewish temples like to this day don't have statues of God in them. There's, um, and so as soon as he gets out this coin, on it is the image of the emperor. And the emperor also viewed himself as somebody to be worshipped. Right There's the cult of the emperor. They have to make sacrifices to the emperor. And Roman emperors thought that they were deities. And so they're literally these Jewish leaders carrying around in their pockets an idol, an image to a foreign god and having no shame about it. They're literally just doing it. So, okay. What's the connection to today's world? Money in this case is clearly an idol. Like it literally has an has a foreign <laughs> an image of a foreign god on it that people are supposed to make sacrifices to. But I think in our lives too, money can also become an idol. Money can be something that we Choose to worship. How do you see money as an idol in our culture? As something that people worship? Uh, Luther wisely says when he's commenting on the first commandment that we should have no other gods, that we, what our God, and nobody's an atheist, Luther says. Our God is that thing which we fear, love, and trust above all others. And how many people fear, love, and trust money above all other things, get their worth from money? And what about you? How have you struggled in your life with money as an idol? The fear about not having enough money. This is a fear for almost everybody, even people that are very wealthy, I know, live with this fear. How have you in your own life struggled to recognize that we need daily bread? And there actually are creature comforts that aren't inherently bad that we want. Like, you know, I was looking up the price today of YouTube TV to watch the Phillies uh baseball games. You know, deciding if I pay $3.99 for the radio or the you know optional one-month price for the, you know, the actual games, right? I mean, not all things that we buy are bad. So How do we figure out um, when money has crossed that line from being something that is simply a tool that we use to something that has become an idol, something that we're worshiping or fearing or establishing our worth based upon it? What also is going on in this story is the subtext that the religious leaders not only controlled the temple sacrifices, which were necessary for forgiveness, but they also knew that this money that had the idols on it was a violation of the commandment. And so they made people exchange their money for pure and holy temple money, right? Like, this money was dirty, so now you have to use clean money which sounds oh so holy, but it just basically allowed them vertical integration, allowed them to exhort the poor. And, and this is why Jesus uh, flips out and overturns the money changers in the temple. What does that mean for us today? Well, it makes me think a lot about money and sacred space. And now many of us have a sense that money's a little bit dirty, somehow a little bit tempting to idolatry. And then there's a little bit of discomfort with it then, in sacred spaces or can be. And so I'm curious, the religious communities that you have been a part of, have they been ones in which um, money has been a very private thing, like you don't know what anybody else gives? Or has money been and sort of contribution to the community been very public? So for example, like in some uh, synagogues or churches, you had to buy certain pews or names of people who gave were sort of uh, you know emblazoned at different parts in the church. Um, Or, you know, when we were in Tanzania, in fact, you had to publicly show what, what you were getting so that everybody knew in the community. How much you are giving or some churches demand uh, like tax records of of their top givers to make sure that or their their core members to make sure that they're actually tithing so i'm curious if you've been a part of churches that are more public or private in terms of sort of faith and money and and i'm curious what your own comfort level is and And maybe even where that comes from. Is that your childhood? Is that experiences in leadership at a church? But what is your sense of that sort of private versus public expenditure? Again, I think all of us have a sense that that there's something a bit unholy about money or a bit sort of tempting there. And so then uh, we can sort of try to be all pious and holy about it and not have it in the sanctuary or not have it in worship or not have it be a way that somebody can look better than others. But it doesn't fully solve it, right? Money kind of comes back and sort of it, it, it works on us in that, in that unholy way. So what are ways in churches you've seen where there can be sort of a, a healthy way in which um, generosity is encouraged? Uh, in general, but to the church um, in which there is a way in which this isn't totally a private affair, yet it money doesn't become something that the rich can lord over the poor that they've given more than they have. Well, that should be enough for some initial ponderings here on rendering to Caesar and rendering to God. As Americans, we have this strange thing when it comes to how we parse out what's spiritual and what's godly and what's of the government or of Caesar, in that almost all Americans, I think if you took a poll, uh, would want that their president would be a prayerful person, right? That if we found out that if our, our president was praying at night, I think we'd all feel good about that. We'd say, yeah, well, of course we want our president to pray. But if that same president the next day Were to get up and in front of the, go on the TV or whatever and say, "Uh, last night in dream the Lord spoke to me and we must go and attack, blah, blah, blah. Or this is the new legislation that I'm proposing because the Lord has spoken to me. We'd get really nervous. We'd say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 what's going on? And so why is it that we're comfortable with people being faithful, but not necessarily making those statements in public? Well, it goes back to 1648, uh, and I want to argue probably the most important time period for us in uh, the West in terms of our worldview is what happened in the 17th uh, century when between 1618 and 1648, Europe had the Thirty Years' War. And troops came from the south, troops came from the north, troops came from the west, troops came from the east, and they fought and they fought and they developed technologies and they, you know, plundered and they stole and they sieged and they had famines and everybody died, yada, yada, yada. Okay. And at the end of this, these various groups of Protestants and Catholics kind of all looked at each other and they wrote a fancy treaty called the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, again, that defines many of the modern boundaries of European states. But something else happened. And that was a collectively Europeans society. They weren't going to use religion as a justification for war anymore. So if you notice, after 1648, you don't get wars of religion. There are plenty of wars in Europe. So when you say that religion is the cause of violence, uh, just look at the 20th century of Europe. Um, but there may be uh, spiritual and religious factors at play. But if you're going to declare war, you have to have some other, um, however meager, justification for, for your actions. Okay. And what happens is that uh, there comes along this movement, which is called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment says, look, faith is a problem. Uh, You know, miracles didn't happen. Um, The real thing we need is reason and facts. This lays the foundation for the later scientific revolution, Um, the high point of sort of the um, the Enlightenment is when, in the French Revolution, they take the beautiful cathedral Notre Dame, which means, you know, our, our, our Lady, uh, this tribute to Mary, um, and they change it to the Temple of Reason, <laughs> um, and of course, this doesn't stick, and the Enlightenment can't defeat. Uh, faith and religion, and so there ends up being this compromise. And it's never written down formally, but you see it in things like the First Amendment of our Constitution, where you basically say, look, faith is a private thing that is for church and for home, reason is for the public sphere, and is for uh, policy and, and politics, and so again, this is why it 's we okay, and we even want our leaders to pray at night that 's a demonstration of faith, and that 's okay and we again, we want faith as long as it 's sort of in the interior of the heart this this motivating force that can help you get through tough times or discipline you or encourage you, but we really shun, get nervous around sort of public displays of of faith. Um, that move beyond just a sense of I believe in God to really this is what God has told me to do. You need to have sort of, again, reasoned arguments for public discourse. And so in this worldview, church and state become two separate entities, almost sort of twin sisters that are sort of ruling over our lives. Reason for outside the home, faith for inside the home. And in fact, you could even argue the Sunday-Monday split I've been talking about all fall really grows out of the Enlightenment. What's important to remember, though, is that the people who lived in Jesus's day who would have heard him had no sense of that sort of cleaving of head and heart, of faith and, and reason, of government and, and faith. That just wasn't their, their worldview, right? I mean, Herod's building a temple to uh, Augustus, to the Roman Empire, like religion and state and faith, they, there's no separation, and so we're going to hear what Jesus says about the emperor and Caesar and probably think okay that means give to God ooh, the spiritual stuff in your home and your heart and give to Caesar the public stuff and and the government and taxes. Well, in the Bible again, you would have had a much closer relationship between <laughs> faith and and religion between God and and the emperors and in fact both the the Babylonian captivity of, of the Jewish people when Babylon comes and uh, sort of takes them a, away, and then in the exile, and then ultimately the freedom from the exile under Syria of Persia. Well, those are all seen as God sort of writing human history, intervening uh, in judgment and then later on behalf of the Jewish people. Yet at the same time, yet at the same time, uh, there are plenty of examples of leaders in the Bible who were not faithful, uh, whether this is sort of the, the flawed person of David or even more wicked kings who had no sense of redeeming values, no sense of confession, no sense of faith in them. They were just bad people who were overseeing God's people. And so the Bible has this incredibly strong notion of God's sovereignty working behind the scenes, yet the hardness of the human heart that we can't just say who's ever in charge clearly is there because God willed it. So how do we put this all back together besides just neatly cleaving church and state, right? If we want to acknowledge that somehow this initial question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, i.e., is Caesar a representative of God, that that's a difficult answer because on the one hand we say God gives authority for the common good and for the good ordering of society, yet leaders are sinful and, uh, they can make mistakes and people can bring the power the wrong people. Mm. So what do we do besides maybe some either theocracy, cynicism, cynicism, is there another way to sort of add up church and state? And there obviously are a number of, of ways that theologians have, have thought about, uh, this that are really, uh, Helpful, Reinhard Niebuhr's "Christ and Culture" of a, two generations ago is, well, I think, will stand five hundred years from now. It was like a definitive work on it. But uh, what I want to argue here is is I think there are two things that we can walk away from from these words about uh, the emperor and Caesars with. And the one thing is that there is a need for civil government, right? There is a need for the Caesars of the world. There is a need. Um, for administration and uh, accountability for people when they do wrong things and so forth. But even beyond simply a need for government over and against some extreme sort of libertarian position, I I wonder what it would take for us to, especially within America, to revitalize uh, a sense that those who were in government were doing a public service that a way to live out your faith and to serve your neighbor was actually to do government work. And what's happened is that sort of conservatives tend to distrust the government. And I've noticed that liberal people now are sort of so much favoring nonprofits over sort of government work um, that what's, what's robbed, I think, is a sense two generations ago in our country of a real sense of sort of public servanthood, like the reason why you uh, enter the House of Representatives is not to get Twitter followers, but because you actually want to make laws better within this country, right? Or we want to thank and uplift the people who work in our local governments on these stormwater ordinances or whatever, because we, we recognize that really is for the, for the common uh, good. And the, the second thing that I would want to argue for, though, is humility, Uh, in all of our political discourse, recognizing that um, the Bible, as much as it shows that God works through leaders, also shows the hardness of the human heart, and that um, it's very unlikely that at any point we're right about what God is doing in the public sphere, that um, this isn't simply a lesson of the Enlightenment, this is actually Scripture's teaching as well, that, that humans don't always understand what God is doing. And even when they do, they don't always have the capacity to to bring it through and to restore some humility Uh, A recognition that we can't always get it right. I think that's a way we can render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, i.e. respect authorities, uh, promote public servanthood as a way of civil order, but give to God's what is God's. And that recognizes that um, we're all sinners and that um, we're not going to all get it right and to ascribe the ultimate kingdom, power, and authority uh, to God and to then pray that we can be a part of God's kingdom here on earth.